These stories sometimes contain mature content and language for adult audiences. Listener discretion is advised. If there's something that you're like, wow, this is nagging at me that I want to do this thing or try this thing, go for it. Try it. Put some thought into it. Look at strategizing how to make, how to get something off the ground, what it should look like, you know, in your first year or so, what it could look like after that. I think that, you know, the world really embraces people trying different things, bringing, you know, new things to communities. Your wacky idea could become, you know, the, one of the next great sports. Welcome to Digging Deep true stories a big change. Each episode of this podcast digs deep into one person's story of change to reveal a little bit about how and why we make big changes in our lives and what can be learned from these experiences. I'm your host, Kelly Styring, founder and principal researcher from Insight Farm, a consultancy that helps companies learn from their customers and consumers through deep conversation and connection, often told as stories like the one you'll hear on this podcast. So let's get the conversation started. This episode features Kim Stegeman, a.k.a. Rocket Mean, Executive Director of the Rose City Rollers, a modern-day roller derby league in Portland, Oregon. With membership of more than 500, who knew roller derby could be such a strong force for empowerment, courage, and accessible fitness for girls, women, and gender-expansive individuals? Listen now to her fascinating story of change from corporate life while playing roller derby herself as Rocket Mean, and ultimately to executive director of one of the most strategy-driven sports organizations around. I think you'll be amazed by this story. And so I want to learn from you, in your own words, what you think your big change story is. So if you were going to write a headline or capture it in a few words, what do you think that story is? What was my big change would be launching one of the biggest, baddest roller derby leagues in the world and growing it from the ground up from a a handful of friends knocking around on the track to, you know, 500 plus skaters, four-time reigning world champs, and, you know, really well-developed as far as the business infrastructure. I think that's been one of the secrets to the success of the Rose City Rollers is that we've always been driven by data and we always treated Rose City Rollers like a business. So I'd like to actually go back in time and better understand how did you first become aware of roller derby? Talking about modern roller derby and how I became aware of that. I didn't when we founded it. It was uh, my friend Jeffrey Wonderful and Yvette Reyes, who basically we were at a club and Jeffrey is a very theatrical person, did like rock operas and stuff like that. And he said, let's start a derby team. And I was like, oh my gosh. I'm wonderful at skating and I would love for a reason to tackle people and thought of it really as kind of something fun to do with friends, you know, drink some beers, knock each other around, have a good time. When, you know, when that happened, I was already aware of roller derby from having grown up working at a roller rink in my teen years, but also basically growing up as a rink rat in the, you know, late seventies and early eighties in California. You know, of course we all knew about the seventies, uh, roller derby, which was akin to wrestling, you know, very theatric, you know, lots of elbows and flying over the handrails and things of that nature. So I naturally had kind of a a love and respect for that version of roller derby. When Jeffrey brought it up, I was just like, you know, I'm I'm 28 and I'd like something kind of fun and knockabout to do with my friends. Oddly enough, in 2002. 
Texas had started playing derby, but it wasn't, we didn't know about it when Jeffrey brought it up to me, which was super interesting. And then there was what, 28 leagues that popped up all around the U.S. between 2002 and basically 2005. What do you think drove the formation of all those new leagues all at once? When I think about where a lot of these leagues kind of popped up, you know, it's places like Portland, Oregon and Austin, Texas, where you had, you know, populations of most of us that founded leagues were about the same age. We were in our you know late 20s, early 30s. And I think a lot of us were just kind of seeking out something that was fun and rugged and us and about us and our friends. And kind of it, it came, I think, from, you know, a new version of like women's empowerment. You know, it was a matter of, you know, that we were we were all, I think, kind of seeking community and we didn't know it. I, I can't really understand how all of us kind of came to the same idea around the same time. It was, it was kind of miraculous. It's kind of interesting to me how different the leagues are now, though, than that very theatrical style of the 60s and 70s. Certainly there's some. Um, theatricality is that the right word but not not what you know it's not the glamorous ladies of wrestling right yeah I mean I think in the beginning a lot of us thought about having that kind of throwback like I know that Jeffrey when we started he wanted it to be like the throwback big fights the you know the, the mistress of the penalty box and things of that nature and like we all kind of started out with some of that stuff i mean like we had a huge dog pile fake fight in one of the first bouts and other leagues had a lot of theatrical stuff like there was a spinning wheel that you had to, if you got a penalty you had to spin this wheel and so in the beginning there was a lot of that kind of focused on just really kind of giving a show as opposed to the sport side of it and I think part of it is, you know, when you're when you're launching something new and you're saying, hey, world, come spend money on, you know, a, a ticket. We're going to entertain you. We all kind of dove into that. Right. And then we said, well, is the sport not entertaining enough? People love sports. And so I think that we kind of naturally evolved. And again, I really, really um, believe in, you know, asking the audience what they want. I believe in asking my skaters what they want and, you know, kind of figuring out where the common ground is. Um, We were really asking, you know, the audience, you know, what do you love about the game? What do you love about coming to Derby? All those kind of things. And, you know, people, I think, love the atmosphere. They loved, um, you know, the drinking beer and cheering for their favorite team. Uh, They liked the thematic nature of the team's like the breakneck Bettys and the guns and rollers. And so they enjoyed that kind of stuff. I don't think a lot of people ranked very high, the really kind of tongue in cheek things that happened. And then, you know, the, the taste of the audience, it evolved. It evolved to people being like, oh, I want my team to win. Right. So they, they were starting to care less about, you know, the, the kind of fake things that were added in. And they started caring more about, oh, my sport, my team is dominating this year. They're doing so good. Look at this new player they've got. Um, Oh, they're really kind of learning the strategy, um, this and that. So a lot of it comes down to, are we listening to the people who are spending their hard-earned cash on a ticket? And then in 09, uh, I mean, like 08, like I think we all finished the year with like $5 in the bank. In 09, we did a huge survey and we moved out of playing in a big arena and we started playing at our 
facility, which we still play at because we love it. It's really intimate and awesome. And so we moved into this 500 person facility. And so we said, okay, we're going to pack this place with 500 people. Let's get our biggest, baddest diehard fans and let's give them what they want. I've seen it described in various places as a contact sport for women. Would you agree with that? Very much so as far as the contact sport part of it. Uh, yeah, it's, um, it is full contact. And I mean, the version that we do is women, girls, and gender expansive individuals. You know, in the beginning, it was, you know, for, for women. And then we've definitely expanded because Derby is a, is a really inclusive environment. We wanted to be uh, gender inclusive to those that felt women's Derby was the place for them. For those who've never seen roller derby, or at least modern roller derby, can you explain the basics of the game? Sure. Modern roller derby is played on a flat surface. It is basically an oval, and the oval is about 10 feet wide at any given point. And you're going to have five players from each team on the track at a given time. Each team has one jammer and four blockers. And the point of the game is the jammers score one point by passing members of the opposing team. And they can only score on a single person one time per pass. So for example, if I'm fighting my way through the pack and I get knocked out of bounds and have to go back and you know fight my way through again, I don't get points additionally on the people I've already passed. So it really behooves a jammer to get through on your first try. Um, but the blockers, the blockers are playing offense and defense simultaneously. And so what that means is as a blocker, I'm going to be trying to help my jammer get through as smoothly as possible while stopping the other team's jammer. Really, it looks like a swirling ball of chaos the first few times you watch it. So you really got to kind of tune your eyes then to be able to like refocus on the jammer and see where they're at. Um, And then once you learn how to watch the jammers fighting their way through, then you can really start picking up on some of the nuance of the strategy that the blockers are executing. And talk to me a little bit about what contact is allowed and what contact is not allowed. Um, yeah, uh, what contact is allowed and not allowed is a great question because it is inherently dangerous to tackle people while wearing roller skates. So there are a lot of rules and the rules largely come down to making it a safer game. You can hit people along you know, the sides of their body, in the front of their body, in their chest. You cannot hit people in their head, in their back, or like kicking their feet out from underneath them. So really most of the rules about kind of contact zones come down to Where could you hit somebody safely and it's not going to be something they didn't see coming? You don't see that coming all the time, I will promise you, because people come at you hard and quick and you're looking at other places. Um, You make it sound like so much fun to go knock around your friends. Why why is is. that? It's it's a bit of a conundrum, though, when you think about I'm going to go do this rough and tumble sport, but I'm going to do it with my friends. Oh, no. I mean, it's wonderful. Like, um, I think, you know, one of the beautiful parts about roller derby is that it's so much about community and you do spend so much time actually playing against your own teammates um, that it really teaches you one of the best things about sport, which is, you know, you can really give it your all against somebody and, you know, knock into them on the track. But then when you step off the track, your friends, your teammates, you know, your compadres, I think the, the, the big thing is it, it, there's just the thing about playing any kind of sport where you get on the track and you want to do your very best. And when you land a really good block against somebody, you know, whether they're your opponent or, you know, your best friend, that feeling of, oh, I just did something wonderful is just such a charge that I think that, that 
you know, you end up having that like throughout the game with your friends, you know, I may land a huge block on a friend of mine and they go flying. And in the moment they're like, damn it. But at the same time, they also know that same feeling of when you take somebody out, how good it feels, you know, assuming that they don't get hurt. Talk to me about the choice that you made for the Rose City Rollers to go with flat track versus some of the banked tracks that are out there. So when, um, in 2005, uh, I think 26 or 28 leagues around the U.S. got together and formed the Women's Flat Track Derby Association. So in that hotel room in Chicago in 05, um, you know, we kind of made the conscious decision that uh, while there was, I believe, a bank track in Texas and a bank track in Arizona, um, we were like, you know, if we really want this to be an inclusive thing, let's do it on flat track. Um, it's also going to give us a lot more competitors. Uh, being able to have a flat track was a lot more accessible for a lot of people. And so I think that's kind of where the, you know, the, the reason that flat track is so much more prevalent. And uh, so is it the accessibility of the flat track that makes it more inclusive? Is that what you oh, mean? Oh, definitely. I mean, okay. if you look at leagues um, who pop up, you know, they don't pop up and have their own facility and have a sport court floor and a permanently taped down track. You know, a lot of them are going to be coming in and, you know, taping down a track inside of a vacant warehouse that they only have access to for a couple hours, you know, each night of the week or doing it in a roller rink between session times or skating outside on, you know, um, a hockey flat surface um, where they are going to use chalk to make the the track. Um, So really the fact that, you know, the diagrams are all online and somebody could draw out you know, a track and essentially play derby, like that's accessibility. So if you have a parking lot, a box of chalk and a group of friends with skates, you could basically do this. Yeah. That's kind of like the roots of, of where it all started. Do you know more about that history of where it all started that goes back farther than what we talked about? Oh yeah. yeah it started in 1930 uh, by uh, Leo Seltzer here in uh, Portland actually. And um, it was a skate race. It largely was like kind of like a relay that went on for a long, long time. And the interesting thing is that it kind of came and went like every 20 years. So uh, the roller derby was big in the 30s, and then it kind of died down um, in the 40s. And then it came back in the 50s, and then it died down in the 60s, and then it came back in the 70s. It started as people basically kind of seeing who could skate like the fastest, the longest type of thing. Um, And then it started evolving into... um, you know, the derby that we saw in the 70s, which was more about, you know, the jammer gets a point for passing numbers to the opposing team, and we're whipping people through the crowd. It was also like, it was crazy. Like they would play in huge arenas. I've seen photos and it's just unbelievable. Let's talk a little bit about your decision to lead the league. So you were part of its creation, but were you always in a leadership role? One day I was at work and I worked at um, Davis Allen Advertising. And um, I remember thinking to myself, you know, like getting the, you know, the, the data of our membership organized and making sure that we're maintaining like contact lists and all that kind of stuff. And that um, we start organizing people paying dues so that we could rent spaces to practice and, you know, getting some merch made and things like that. I was like, there's a lot of these kind of things that just, they need to be kept going because this matters to people. I think we were probably at about like 
80 people at that time. And it was like, this is mattering to people. And if it's mattering to people, I need to make sure that it keeps going and that it's, you know, consistent. And I think that was really kind of the day that I, you know, took a big step towards becoming the executive director of the Rose City Rollers. It was identifying how much, how much Derby meant to the people that were participating and going, I don't want to let this fail because I see that love and that spark in their eyes. Did you make a direct shift from your position in advertising to this or was, the, was there a transition where you did both? From 04 to 06, I still worked at the ad agency and was doing this like every spare moment of my life. (laughs) And uh, it was when we were actually decided that we were going to rent our own facility um, on the property of Oaks Amusement Park. Um, That was the time when my board was like, okay, we need to, we need to hire uh, Rocket Mean to do this, you know, to, to manage the league. Um, as we take on, you know, having a, a monthly mortgage and or a lease payment, you know, it really wasn't a, a popular thing for leagues to be hiring people. I think a lot of the kind of, you know, DIY nature of Derby lent itself to people not putting a lot of emphasis on treating Derby leagues like a business, which I think is part of the thing that's kind of held Derby back. You know, if you look at Rose City, I have eight staff under me, which I have more staff than the international governing body has, I believe. A lot of leagues have one employee. It's not treated like a business too often. And so when you take this more professional stance, what do you think the impacts are? Well, I think the impacts that you have when you take a more professional approach to uh, roller derby is you have the organizational stability. You have the ability to do things like strategic planning. Where do we want to be in a year? three years. Okay. What are all the pieces that we need to get us there? Where are the places that we're going to need to expand our organization and what resources do we need to make that happen? How do we, how do we build in some safety nets? Okay. How do we get to having like, you know, six months operating expenses in the bank at all time? How do we look at bringing together the right people into the conversations to create consistent benefit across the entire program. Like, so for example, how do you make sure that your recreational program, your junior program and your adult competitive program are all getting what they need? How do I make this, you know, built for success right now and built for success in the future? Can you give us a little better sense of scale? I I think there may be a misconception that this is, you know, a couple dozen people. So Rose City Rollers is 17 teams and programs made up of typically four to 500 skaters, typically going to have around 800 volunteers. So yeah, I mean, we're, we're big. Like we run 48 hours a week of practice time. Our all-star adult team are four-time reigning world champs. It's fairly huge. I know at one point, I think we hit like 600 skaters. At that point, it feels a bit big because for me, I'd rather have in our league, the people who are, you know, monthly dues paying members getting a a great experience out of it and kind of getting what they need. So, I mean, I don't have a sweet spot as far as numbers. I just want to know that my skaters are all having a great time. How do you think the league impacts the greater community? For me, I look at it kind of in chunks. If I look at the kids, the seven to 12 year olds that are playing derby, right? Um, All of a sudden we have these young people who are hearing the message of working as a team is great. We have young people who are being told, be your wacky little self. Like, 
let out your creative side, like have a great time, be young, create friendships with people who are, you know, not in your school class, but are from, you know, different parts of the city. So we get like, so to, to me, that's putting, you know, fairly friendly, uh, well-adjusted kids out into the community who, you know, believe in giving back and who believe in having community and believe in having a great time and having fun. You know, I think anything that we can do to make kids it ingrained in kids that sports are fun is great for us. When it comes to teenagers, like I love the fact that the teenagers get onto the track with one another and they are, are being taught you don't have to be in an adversarial relationship with every other person who's a teen near you. Learn that you can be against somebody in a game and then be buddies with them off the track. Having the ability to, to go, okay, I can rely on somebody else. You know, I don't have to do this myself. Um, I can, you know, rely on my community. I, I think that with, with teenagers, it's whatever we can do to keep teenagers moving and being happy and having, you know, people to rely on during your teen years. It's just so important because it's such a hard time, you know, and anything we can do to improve that is great. When we look at like a lot of the adults that come to roller derby, a lot of them have never played sports before. And so they've never had that team connection. You know, a lot of them come to derby. They haven't had that sense of self-confidence that comes from your body doing something new and different. And so all of a sudden we have people that are like, oh my gosh, I met my best friends at roller derby. Um, you know, I learned how to step into a community and try something new, right? So they get that kind of bravery that then they take out into the community. They learn that, Derby all over the world is done by volunteers participating. They take that sense of philanthropy out into the world and they're like, okay, well, volunteering is just a normal thing. I like to think that Derby is like a gateway drug for volunteering because, you know, people come to it and we're like, no, everybody does volunteering. It's, you know, what you do. So you send out into the world these, you know, 500 people who are brave, confident, have a volunteering spirit. Does the league itself do volunteer projects beyond development? The league does a lot of different community engagement type things. So for example, with uh, Active Children Portland, we're going to be putting on free after-school programming. And so what we'll do is we'll come in with our skate mobile and our coaches, and we're going to teach roller skating. And then if some of their participants want to learn derby, then we'll do that. So we're going to do like sessions there. Um, we have different community partners uh, like Brown Girl Rise where they do uh, community activities for black and brown girls in the Portland community. We're very interested in letting these organizations kind of say how they want us to be, how they want us to support them. No, you tell us what you want to do and we'll just show up and bring our fun. Um, we usually look for things that have good mission fit and whose values align with ours. Like, you know, once you kind of instill in your membership of, you know, your membership that is hundreds and hundreds of people deep, that giving back is, you know, something that really matters to us, then it's not a strange thing when we're, you know, saying, oh, by the way, let's support these other organizations that, you know, that are near and dear to our hearts. It's interesting that earlier in the conversation, we talked about the evolution of the point of view from women's contact sport to including girls and gender expansive individuals. And then you also talk about some of the volunteer work or uh, community building work that you're doing with diverse populations. How, how diverse is the league right now? The league is not hugely diverse right now, nor is the sport of roller derby. Um, I mean, it is fairly, a fairly, um, you know, white sport. 
gender diversity, you know, I think most leagues around the world are fairly diverse. But yeah, as far as, you know, racial diversity, we're just not there. And so, and it's not just a matter of, you know, going out and recruiting people of color. It's really about if our sport is a super white sport, then why is it that? Why do people of color not feel that this is a um, welcoming place or a place they belong? So right now, both on you know an international level and on a local level, we're all kind of taking the time to go, okay, well, what is it about roller derby? And for me, also Rose City Rollers that we need to work on. And so you know we've set up a, a diversity, equity, and inclusion committee. We've hired a consultant. We've gone through a, um, a self-assessment and kind of prioritize the work that we need to do. Some stuff is policy work. Some stuff is looking at how do we create, uh, you know, safe spaces, uh, safe events. You know, how do we look at our culture and go, okay, what are the ugly parts of our culture that would make somebody from a marginalized community feel unwelcome or unsafe. So we're in the thick of all of that work right now. Um, you know, it's fairly uncomfortable and which it should be. I mean, I'm a white chick in my forties. Like it should be fairly uncomfortable to me, but I'm happy that we are diving into the work and that we're doing it. And that you know, and, it, and it's not something that I ever see as being done. It's going to be something where we keep evolving ourselves. What would you say was the biggest change for you, the entry into roller derby at all in the early days or the transition into executive management? So rolling from the ad agency into running derby, I mean, that was a change because I had never run a nonprofit. I had never been, you know, I'd never run a company. But in those early days, like there was so much hustle and like everything was changing every day all kind of felt like it fell into the realm of building something from the ground up right so it was just super exciting every day and it felt like basically I was running a marathon for a few years straight one of the bigger changes was actually kind of evolving into a manager a manager of people and the person that helps chart the course for a business that really feels like the place that I One that I was very nervous about, and I actually went and sought out um, an executive coach to help me with, okay, well, if I'm going to have a bunch of employees below me, how do I make sure that we're all kind of staying on track with working? How do I make sure they're all getting what they need? And, you know, how do I kind of, you know, do the work to help bring out the very best in these people that we're hiring and that they feel supported and they feel like they have a leader that they can come to and ask questions of and that, you know, we're all in this working equally as hard together. That was a big change. Are there any lessons you know? that you learned on the track that you're applying to your role in executive management? Yeah, I think that one of the big lessons that you learn on the track that is um, totally applicable to management is really trusting the people around you. You know, trusting that we're all there for the same reasons and that we all want to do our very best. But at the same time, also looking around and going, okay, well, who is it that could really use that extra boost right now? Like, does this person over here need a pep talk? Getting in tune with the people that are around you and that are on your team. So talk to me a little bit about how your team of professional managers works to plan strategically for the future of the organization. Well, I think as far as strategic planning goes, um, it's actually been something that we implemented very early on. You have to step back and go, okay, I want to get from here to there in X amount of time and then breaking down, okay, what are the things that are going to get us there? For me in the beginning, it was 
as simple as going through a SWOT analysis and realizing the impact of identifying our strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. If we want to, if we say, what are the three things on here that if we impacted them, they would have the biggest positive impact on our organization? Doing that kind of a thing and really getting ourselves into the habit and going, okay, now we've set some goals. They're specific, they're measurable, the time bound. Um, you know, we have owners for them and things like that. Um, and we usually we really use goal setting to kind of drive decision making. It's, it's one of those things that I'm always telling leagues to do is that, you know, you have to be able to identify what are the things that are going to really help move you forward? And what are the things that, what are the risks you really need to mitigate? So I, I feel, I feel lucky that my organization has always been really supportive of us doing that kind of strategic work on a regular basis. It's, it's smart because, and, and it's so interesting because you don't, I don't think that an average person would think that an organization would be so strategic. You know, you expect it of more commonplace businesses. But you don't necessarily expect it of something like a roller derby league. No, people are always. I'm sorry, shocked. I don't mean to insult you. I'm, no, no, because I'm not insulted. You're incredibly, slightest. you're incredibly strategic and 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 incredibly successful, and it's just so behind the scenes. Yeah, it, it is. It's, it's not something that you know. Even a lot of businesses do. If I'm if I'm supposed to be steering the ship, I need to know you know how to how to chart the course and then how to get everybody that's with me to go. Oh yeah, that's where we want to go. Let's do it. I'll do my part to get us there. Are you still competing now? No, I retired in 09. The early years of derby, like we really played some serious tackle derby and I just kept breaking things. And then it also became really difficult to do my job and have people not second guess decisions I was making because they thought that it was to impact, positively impact my team. It's second nature. I think that people are going to, you know, be skeptical um, of your leadership if you could potentially be creating benefit for you and yours. And so by retiring, you were able to draw a line between those things. Yes. And then on top of that, you know, playing the game with people, it was just really difficult. Um, do you still skate for fun? Yeah. Yeah. We had a, uh, we had, I don't play derby for fun. You know, I leave that to the. When was the last time you skated for fun? Oh, a couple of weeks ago, we had a roller disco, a roller disco on the rooftop of Lloyd Center, and uh, me and a couple of the alumni were out there skating and having a good time. So I want to close just by asking you what advice you have for others, and I guess I'd like to take this from the context of those who might be interested in participating in roller derby. What what advice do you have for them? I think for those who are interested in participating in a roller derby, um, I wouldn't limit your scope to just skating. I would look at derby as just an amazing, um, you know, kind of as a sport, but also as a community, as a place that you can volunteer. Um, because so many people come to derby, they don't even know that they're looking for community, but that's really what they're looking for. Uh, if the skating itself works for you, you know, get in there, try it out. Um, you know, if the volunteering to help, you know, make the sport there for other people is your jam, do that. You know, if you want to learn to coach, do that. Um, derby is a really kind of a choose your own adventure. So, you know, I, I, I think that most derby leagues around the world are really welcoming spaces and they always need help. So we're always looking for volunteers. We're always looking for new skaters. Um, so yeah, I think that the big thing is people just to, you know, go to, go to things, talk to people, 
Um, you know, if you if you ever see somebody who is a derby person, um, feel free to walk up to them and ask them questions about derby. I promise you, they will tell you about derby and probably be very excited unless they're in the airport trying to make a flight. Thank you for joining us today on Digging Deep, True Stories of Big Change. I'm your host, Kelly Styring, founder and principal researcher from Insight Farm. At Insight Farm, we help companies make their products better through conversation and connection with consumers, often told as stories like the one you've heard today. If you'd like us to help you with consumer research, or if you'd like to participate in this podcast and tell your story, reach out at www.insightfarm.com. We look forward to the conversation.